speak in tongues. But I don't mean what most Americans mean when they say that. Most Americans mean what should be being taught just a block and a half down this street on your right at an Assemblies of God congregation. Since I've never visited or talked to the pastor, I don't know what he actually teaches. In many bodies today, it's whatever he feels like. But the Assemblies of God officially is a Pentecostal body. That means they more or less hold to something called the four square gospel. What this means is that not only do you get saved from sin, death, power of the devil, all that good stuff you know, you just missed out on this part, you also get health, wellness, prosperity, all sorts of good things in this life, but only once you've attained a certain level of spiritual juju, spiritual power, sanctification, whatever you want to call it. And the sign, beginning in Azusa, California, with a movement of Pentecostalism over 100 years ago, the sign that you've attained such spirituality is that you will speak in tongues. You, personally. And the way that this happens is that through your own prayers, petitions, efforts, trials, oh, you've striven so hard, at long last, God will hear your plea and send upon you the promised comforter who will cause you to go oobly bobbly goobly doobly hobbly mobbly boobly ba simply poobly pa And you will either do this because a demon compels you to do it, or you'll do it because you're pressured into doing it by your social structure, but it will not make any sense, no matter what. And that's been studied. It's been shown not only that there's no obvious pattern of any language in what these people say when they say they're speaking in tongues by the power of God. Also, the centers of the brain that use language are not being used, shown in, in scans that they've taken. So what are they doing? Again, I suggest, I hope they're all just pressuring each other into faking it. Because there are pagan sorcerers who also speak in tongues, and they'll tell you they got spirits helping them do it. Now, why do they do this as Christians? Well, again, the Azusa Pacific Revival is, is a long story that's, that's a historical thing, but it comes down to a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 shows us that by the time we've gotten from Acts 2 to a congregation amongst the Greeks in Corinth, something else has happened with tongues in the early church. What's clear that's going on here in Acts is that the apostles anointed with fire from on high are speaking in a way that more than 11 people can hear them in their own languages. That's a thing. Right? I don't, no one's doing that today. Huh? Uh, but that is where this language comes from. By the time we get to 1 Corinthians 14, that doesn't seem to be what's being talked about. In fact, what's being talked about, we can't even figure out from the text. All you can do is guess. So either you can guess that somehow this idea of speaking in tongues transferred from being the apostles preaching to the Jews the truth of Jesus' resurrection in languages those Jews knew from living in foreign countries to you speaking immediately nonsense words for your own heart to show that you're a real Christian. That's a big jump, I think, yeah? But I'll give you another option. Here's the other option. In this Greek congregation in Corinth, there were also... Jews who'd become Christians, and they were often those who were around the teachers and the leaders because they knew the Hebrew scriptures, and they would talk about the Hebrew scriptures, and they would read the Hebrew scriptures, and they would talk about it together maybe in Aramaic. And people were feeling like they were second-class Christians because they couldn't understand what the leadership was saying or praying. You ever been to a Latin mass? 
And nothing wrong with the Latin mass so long as you, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's answer. Well, if you're going to do it, translate it, right? Habakim, Joshua, Kahar, Zion, Lo, Yamot, Lo, Yashev. There you go. 1 Corinthians 14 says it either must be translated by the speaker or someone else in the room. Y'all just translated me speaking in tongues in Hebrew. That's what the Bible teaches we should do. We're doing it here. I think you guys should do it too. Pentecost is a different thing, okay? But not because in the sense of this, the word preached at Pentecost is the word that we are to preach again today. Yeah? There's nothing new. There is no prophecy that is giving us forward revelations. Christ has risen as the fulfillment as what has been said. The New Testament claims this, tells us what we can expect, and leaves us with that word. And the sending of the Comforter, the Spirit, is always to pull us into and back to that word. That's what our John text today really helps with. We won't be able to go through all of that. What a text. It's so beautiful. We'll, we'll, I'm going to highlight a few pieces here if you want to open that one up, though. Sorry about the ice. Our John text. So throughout the Easter season, the one-year lectionary has you reading or hearing John 14 through about 18. And this is Jesus' final sermon and prayer on the night when he is betrayed in the upper room, probably after instituting the Lord's Supper and definitely after washing everybody's feet. It's also about how he's going to go away and come back and how he's going to send the Holy Spirit after that. He talks about it a lot, though, and what it means. And what's interesting about the going away and coming back is he he apparently means both dying and rising. That's, that's what he means. And he also means going to the Father and coming back at the end of the world. And he kind of sees that as sort of the same thing in certain ways, at least in the language. But he wants you to know that whenever he goes away, it's for your good, because that's how he sends you the Holy Spirit. Right? That's kind of the main point there. And then in that big picture of that whole section, you know, we got a lot of good words about it here. The ones I want to highlight are, are the bit about being hated first. Being hated. I don't know that we want to try to be hated or nothing, but the language from the Old Testament I'd rather have us consider today is the difference between being an insider and an outsider. An insider and an outsider. When you come to church, you are and are to be an insider. And those who do not come are outsiders. They do not belong in and among us in the way we belong here. And that's a powerful reality, all the more in a day and age when most people's insiderness is a little box on a screen that they talk to. There's not a lot of groups that talk to each other like this anymore. And so really, we are our own civilization, small one, very tiny. But again, we will then have things about us that are us and are not others. And I am so thankful, St. Paul, that we will and continue to be a people who say the first thing about us that is not like most others is we believe the Bible is true. And we teach the Bible as being true and being about Jesus all the time because we believe that's how the church lives and grows. That's how the next generation comes to know. And all the other things we might do around that might be good, they're not the thing. <laughs> They're not the main thing. 
But again, let's just take that there. If you take that seriously and really start believing the things the Bible say about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, you're going to find people in the world today who hate what you're doing. Hate, despise, will shame you. We've got five. It's been a while. When was the last time someone asked if you had your hands full, Mayor? It's been a while, right? But it happened. Yeah. Uh, what, the other favorite one was, uh, you know what causes that, right? I told her to say next time, yeah, we like it. But uh. The point is, we hate children and we hate families as a society. We're using children to make medicine. It's so evil. Here in this place, we don't hate children. We don't hate families. We don't hate fathers because the Bible teaches us this is what it means to be a people. And that, again, we want to share within these families our trust that the word of Jesus Christ is sufficient. So know them. Then there will be outsiders who think you're a real evil person. And that's because they think Jesus, what he said that you believe, is also evil. They like to paint a fake Jesus, a nice happy one with flowers and daffodils and stuff, who never sing, says things like, if you reject my word, you reject the Father. Period. He's, he's, a, he's a, I don't want to say a harsh king, but he is just king, and he does not show partiality. The other part of the John text, again, there's way more there than we could possibly dig into today. But if you would find the uh, verse... Because we go through two chapters, right? Verse 16, chapter 16, verse uh, 8 and follow. This is, if we're going to have a teaching about what the Holy Spirit does in the Bible, this is the clearest that it gets, I think. Uh, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning, and it's going to list three things, and then it's going to explain each one of them with a reason. And it's not evident on the surface what he's talking about, honestly. Um, he will convict the world concerning sin, one, righteousness, two, and judgment, three. Concerning sin, it's the first one, because they do not believe in me. Second one, concerning righteousness, because I, Jesus, go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Three, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, I think we could spend a lot of time trying to unpack that, but let me just kind of give you an, an early key to start on. What I think he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is going to teach us about people who don't believe being original sinners, huh? that there's just... A mankind that doesn't believe and is under the power of the devil. We're just going to believe that about humanity. It's the first thing. Number two, that was concerning sin. Number two, concerning righteousness. This is justification by grace through faith in Jesus. That Jesus goes to the Father and we see him no longer. And everything else he says in this sermon means that's good. That's awesome. That's on our side. That's for our sake. Yeah? So... He's going to tell us all that we're sinners. He's going to tell us all that Jesus is sufficient. And then number three, concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged, he's going to tell us all there's an end date to this thing. There's a great and magnificent day that isn't the day Jesus died that Peter was talking about, but is his culmination in his return to judge all those who are not inside him? Well, with the demons. With the demons. And the demons 
or having eternal fire prepared for them and their ilk. The Holy Spirit comes to convict people of that, and if they don't believe that, then they are not convicted by the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we normally handle this idea as church? Not with John 16, verses 8 and following, but with the creeds. The creeds are our way of ensuring that we have together a way to quickly say we know what the Holy Spirit has said, and if anyone denies this, we should not listen to them talk. Not here. Not here. Yeah. So the creeds are kind of a way that this idea has been practiced and wherein you can see the early church trying to do justice, to receive the Spirit and say, he points to Christ, he teaches of Christ from the Scriptures, things that never change. And I could show you how the creed is a story of our fall from the Maker into sin and our redemption by the power of Jesus' righteousness leading to that kingdom come end of the world. The very last thing we confess. So it's all right there, just blown up a little bigger in the creed. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's work then is not to make you a chaotic babbling fool, nor somebody who pursues a fantasy life unattainable in this broken, fallen, decaying, and dying age. The role of the Holy Spirit is to awaken you as an insider to a mind that nobody else has access to, which begins with believing the idea that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's not Easter. Let's do it. He is risen. Hallelujah. From there, the Holy Spirit enters into you and begins to rip open your stony heart and pour into it truth, grace, mercy, love, patience, self-control, all by doing it to you. He's patient with you. He is self-controlled for himself with regard to you. He loves you. He's trustworthy toward you. And by showing you that historically from the scripture's confession, hearing it exhorted, and then from time to time even saying, hey, pastor, I have a problem. What should I do? Tell me scripture and I give it to you. Christ will shepherd you. Yes? And that this is what the spirit does. Shepherds you with Christ's word to Christ, and ultimately through this meal into a resurrection in which we all just see it. Oh man, in all its fullness, yeah? All right, so leaving the John text behind, uh, I want to go and now with the rest of our time, try to put together uh, these other two really great stories that we have this morning. The first one makes a lot of sense why it's here. I mean, the second one makes a lot of sense why it's here. Pentecost Sunday, we hear the story of Pentecost. It's the first story that you have to be a little bit of a detective uh, to see why that's here. Why would the Tower of Babel be paired with the coming of the Holy Spirit 50 days after Passover? And the answer is going to have everything to do with this word tongues again. Only not the hoot nanny stuff that we're, we're not going to think about anymore. The actual languages of the children of mankind. In the Acts text, we hear that people from all over the world, if you meet them, they don't make any sense. You ever had this happen? Try to listen to someone with another language? It's something. Let them go back and forth. I mean, just go south of town, you get some Spanish. Let them go. I mean, I took Spanish. I can't follow a thing. Uh, that was in Jerusalem as like a great, bizarre festival Christmas Easter celebration. And they're all Jews, 
but none of them are of the same culture. They're all of these other cultures with these other languages. So when they come together, they can pray together, but they can't always talk together. And there's all sorts of, again, noise going on in this city all through these festivals. So these real human languages are ways people communicate, but they also end up being noise when they try to come together, which makes uh, the Tower of Babel story, at least, you know, you got to touch there, that noise of human miscommunication, we still to this day will call babbling. It's pretty amazing to have a word that's that old in the history of like earth still be in English as that word. It's, it's like the oldest word I know of. Uh, mod at the front of modernism and medicine is also is really old one, but um, Babel goes goes way way back. So at Babel we see the beginning of this problem happen when man has one language and then suddenly has many languages and is driven and dispersed to all the world. So when you put these two stories beside each other, you see man entering unified from the ark after the flood, but unified together, being broken apart as a curse by God, a punishment against our further sin, lest we do greater evils than we already have. That's one end. And so now here we are, scattered and confused. And then on the other end, we have all of that scattering confusion getting pulled down into one preaching, one voice. At first, it's a bunch, 11, calling out, but they're saying, he is risen. Hallelujah. And then finally, Peter's going to say it again. And we'll get to some of his sermon in the Acts text, and we only get half of it today. But let's stick with Babel now, though. But you see how they hang together. We have an opening of a problem as a curse, and then God says, just so you know, I'm saving you from all of it anyway. And he does it in real time. My gospel is greater than language. My gospel is greater than confusion. I want to talk about confusion. But first, I do need to address this apologetic point. I am not like big on, we all need to know apologetics. You maybe don't even know what the word means, uh, and that's okay. Uh, apologetics means the study of defending your faith against criticism and attack. So like when someone says to you, the earth wasn't created in six days because dot, dot, dot. And they have like all these different reasons. You know, what's the answer to each of their criticisms? That's apologetics. I'm not against apologetics. Uh, I just think it's the wrong foot. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. And I'm actually wanting to move more in the direction of offense with our faith. I don't want to offend people needlessly, but neither do I want to, see, to cease playing offense just because somebody doesn't like it. <laughs> That's how you lose the game, right? We're not all getting trophies together we believe something better than other people do. We have an inside idea that is worth sharing. Yeah? So um, trying to veer that back toward Babel again. I forgot how I went in that direction. That's all right. Uh, confusion is the problem. Confusion is the problem. So you have this group. Oh, oh, now I remember. Apologetics. Thank you for waiting for me. <laughs> um, Apologetics. So apologetics are not bad. They just, if you're going to study every complaint anybody makes about Christianity ever, you're going to end up with giant books you're studying to deal with someone who doesn't want to believe anyway. I think it's more important we study the scriptures just as they are for us, 
knowing that people who want to believe want to believe when they hear. And our job's not to convert the goats because it can't be done. It can't be done. All right, so apologetically, though, it is kind of a nice piece here. When you run into that person who says, I don't believe in six-day creation, but I'm still a Christian. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, do you believe in the fall? Well, symbolic, because uh, evolution made it all happen, and death kind of was already here, but man's evil needs to be saved by Jesus, and I believe that. Oh, okay. What about, like, like did people live a long time, like hundreds of years? No, 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 that was kind of just mistakes in the text, but the people meant well, and they were trying to show us how God was with us. So the flood, probably out, right? Worldwide flood, of course, the worldwide flood is out. Uh, that, that's just a, a story about how bad things happen if you're not good people. So at a certain point now, this ain't about six days. This ain't about a flood. This is about when you feel like believing the Bible. And my question is, when do you start? Babel? Because after the flood, it's just Babel. Babel, which insists there was one language for the whole planet and nobody ever misunderstood each other. I can't imagine that life. And I think if you're going to say, I'm a Christian who doesn't believe in six-day creation, then you can't believe in this either. And again, I say, then when do you start? Before the resurrection, I hope. <laughs> I hope. I think this really happened. I think that after we fell, we were given some problems that we weren't expecting. But we really deserve these problems now. Uh, one involves increased pain in childbearing. One involves increased pain in relationships with each other, between man and woman specifically. And then another curse involves labor, like working with your hands, never really going quite the way you want it to, and usually running into problems that hurt you, that finally kill you. So God took us from a perfect garden to that because, well, he wanted to save us from what we'd done to ourselves in the long and short. Okay, so we living like that, not able to eat animals officially, by the way, only able to eat what grew from the trees naturally on this planet, which... If you study any of that prior to the last hundred years, an apple was a different thing. A little more like a crab apple, right? So try to imagine living on carrots and crab apples, right? Um, this is the world they lived in. And they lived hundreds of years like this and seemed to be okay. So much so they began killing each other. Finally, the Lord says, I'm done with this. Going to wash it all away and start over. You've heard the Noah and the Ark story, right? But remember how old these people are, too. I mean, this is just an amazing thing. They go through the flood. It's, uh, I, I should take more time on it than I'm going to. Um, they come off. Noah's going to build an ark. I'm sorry. <laughs> Noah's going to build an altar. He's going to sacrifice on the altar. He's going to plant a vineyard. Um, and one other little tiny thing. Rainbow. <laughs> That's a big one. One other little tiny thing. He tells them they can eat the cows now. They weren't able to do that before. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that this isn't just God saying, well, they were always good for you before. I think that along with sheep, particularly, which the Old Testament is very clear, is a rudimentary food, and ruminating and rudimentary are connected to each other. Um, God designed them to be able to process foods we can't in such a way as to provide proteins we need. Huh? And this is given as a gift in Gen Genesis chapter 10, when he says it was hard on the earth and he gave man meat to eat now. And it's kind of a paraphrase there. But that has happened. 
I suggest to you that before this time, if you tried to eat a cow, it would have killed you. Like they weren't good to eat. It wasn't what they were eating. Why do I suggest that? Because I want you to consider that God has done more than one miracle in history. He doesn't do miracles every day, but he has done them in history. And one of them was making it so that lions stopped eating plants and started eating lambs. That happened like right away. With that, roses started growing thorns. Yeah? With that, we had to eat gross fruit that wasn't quite what it ought to be and didn't fulfill us the way God had originally designed it to be, but kept us barely alive. And now in mercy, after the flood, he gives us a, a heartier piece of food to go with the meal. Yeah? And I suggest this is a miracle in creation as big as the flood event itself with all those waters out of the heavens. Why do I think that's important? Because the next story, right? The Tower of Babel, another miracle. Another miracle, right? Instead of a curse, though, excuse me, instead of a blessing, though, the meat was a blessing. Now we get the curse. Okay, so that's, um, uh, I don't have a good transition, but that's all right. Uh, the only other thing I want us to pull out of the text here this morning, I think, is this. I mean, they come together. There's the pride, right? They're trying to build a city. We could talk about how cities begin as good ideas in, in the Bible always. They begin as good ideas to help people, and they become conglomerate evils that destroy themselves. And the Bible just shows this happening again and again. But what's really most important, again, is to circle around the idea of babbling itself. So the curse that happened on this day is still here, even for us Christians. I'm going to talk about Pentecost in a moment, but... I'm going to say that this curse remains. And obviously, there's still languages everywhere. People speak different languages. You can learn other languages. But I think this curse is far worse than just, you know, we got Spanish and French to choose from in high school, right? Uh, what's really going on is that when I say something and you hear it, even though we can get awful close to understanding each other, there's a small bit that doesn't. And that at times in conversation, that small bit can be a large bit. And at times in conversation, those large bits can start to fly really fast to where pure miscommunication is happening, where you just won't understand what I'm saying or something like that, right? And that is babble. That is our selfish spirits hearing and speaking everything curved in so that even two together talking about the same thing have two completely selfish perspectives. And even as Christians, we'll struggle and have to work at, I should say, communicating clearly, because Babel is a creational curse. Now, moving into Christianity, the most beautiful thing of Pentecost Day is that the scriptures evidently beat Babel. Even though I can go to the Bible and misunderstand it, the Bible comes to me to make me understand it. That's its job. That's what the Spirit does. He convicts. And so, wherein the rest of the world is trying to climb out of Babel by talking about trees and dogs and what they look like and how they're like or not like each other, the best you can do with Plato, we get to start with the wisdom of the king from on high who created heaven and earth and declares to us what shall be before it comes to pass. What a thing. And those things we can cling to even when all our other stories and conversations continue to struggle. But we struggle beneath a word that is true ever and upon a foundation that is mercy and grace and the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that Pentecost and Peter's preaching 
before anything else should show us the church exists as a unifying thing in the world. It pulls people together. It creates an inside community. It just is set against this age. Yes. And so this age doesn't understand it and hates it and hates it. One last bit this morning. Uh, we're getting right at a good amount of time here. One last bit this morning from Peter's sermon itself. I won't get into the, the rushing wind and the fire. It's all really cool. It's all Elijah connection kind of stuff. Um, I just want to say first that uh, this is half of the sermon. It cuts off right before he starts to really say stuff. All he says so far is like, I'm going to quote the Old Testament and say that it's true. That's all he does up to today's point. And then he really talks about Jesus in the next part. So just know that where he's going is he is risen. <laughs> Hallelujah. What if I say, Those who trust in Jesus Christ are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. Good. Second thing is that what he quotes from the Old Testament is Joel chapter 2. It's one of several key Old Testament passages about what appears to be the end of the world. However, cannot be only the end of the world because it's also always about Jerusalem and Judea, including things like, now Joel is talking about one thing, Amos also mentions the moon turning to blood, the sun being darkened out, same kind of prophecy at a different time. He is talking about a bunch of locusts that are coming upon Jerusalem to blot out the sky. Isaiah will use similar language to talk about how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by Babylon, that the sun is going to be blocked out of the sky. There aren't any recordings of that actually happening that day. I don't know if it did or didn't. What I know is that the sun is supposed to turn to blackness and the moon to blood multiple times in the Old Testament. And it all happened already before Jesus. And then Peter comes and says, it was all about Good Friday. It was Good Friday. All those things just were symbols of Good Friday. Good Friday is when the sun turned to blackness. You saw that, right? And he's risen. Hallelujah. <laughs> so this quote is to say that Jesus fulfilled this quote. Not to say we need to go look for the moon to turn to blood or some crazy stuff like that. And in the fulfillment of this quote, don't miss that, along with Christ's death and resurrection, the death of God and his resurrection, there comes the pouring out of the Spirit upon his sons and daughters in order that they might prophesy. Prophesy. So along with me believing that Lutherans should speak in tongues, I also believe we should prophesy. I believe you are all priests of God, and I actually think you all, women included, are kings. Because Jesus is a prophet, a priest, and a king, and you are in him, members of his body, you can't not be these things. And the Bible, in fact, says in multiple places you are these things. The problem is we misunderstand these things with pagan ideas. We think prophet means future teller. We think priest means sacrifice maker with a funny cloak. Yeah? And we think king means man with a crown. Huh? But what these things really mean, prophet means a person who knows the counsel of God and says it. Priest means a person who has the right to pray to God. And king means one who has been given authority by God to do good to other people. That's what those things mean. And Christians are all those things. A fulfillment of all Old Testament offices, including judge, yeah, which Christ himself takes and now sends out into the world as, well, you, Christians. 
You have these shepherds around. What we are is just Christians. We're supposed to do these exact same things in front of you, so you have a model. But the prophesying I do here is I tell you what the scriptures say, not something I think or some future story about whatever, but what the scriptures say. And the priestly work I do is I pray for you and with you in front of you. And the kingly work I do as I try to help you judge matters and disputes among you as we live together as a people are all just me being a Christian man in your midst as the loudest voice. And each other Christian man in here is his own voice in his home. And each other woman is his helper to be a voice to all others who visit. And this great and perfect gift of God has been poured out on you specially and uniquely as Christians in the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And that is declared to you here in this text. So what does that mean? I mean, really, go home, open a psalm, read the same psalm for a couple of weeks until you've memorized it. Find a favorite line in it and see if you can say it out loud randomly or away from the house someday, maybe just while you're driving. One day, that'll come out of your mouth to someone else and lo and behold, you've, you've been a prophet. You've been a prophet. I actually could suggest to you that you already did prophesy this morning when you sing these glorious hymns, when you confess the creed to each other, that is to stand in the council of God, receive the gift of Pentecost poured out as Joel prophesied, and without error, at least so far as God is concerned, state the glorious work of God for all to hear. Now, many more things in the text today, but I think that's a great place for us to go on our way, of course, moving toward the sacrament here to complete our morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.